Hello, everybody, and welcome to Science and Pictures Presents Science in Podcast. As always, I am one of your co-hosts, Madison Dix, here with our other co-hosts, the wonderful, the bearded, Jared Adelman. That's him. I thought you might have been talking about your cat real quick, so I didn't want to jump in, but, you know. Well, if I introduced, starting with bearded, I would have introduced Humphrey, the bearded dragon. Oh, true. That is fair. Anyways, yeah, it's me. I'm here. So, my dear listeners, if you're wondering right now what on earth are they talking about, get ready to we are too. quite a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> Our mission here on this podcast is to take the headache out of peer-reviewed scientific literature, and I think we do a pretty good job of that, Jared. Yeah, but what we also definitely. like to do is make a lot of jokes, have a lot of laughs, go down a lot of rabbit holes, and share a lot of fun facts. So, if you like science, you like learning, I think you're in the right place. Welcome. Yeah, it's like science without all the pretentious BS. Exactly. No pretentious BS here. Just fun and dragons mm-hmm. and cats. You're going to have fun whether you want, whether you like it or not. You will have fun. <laughs> so thank you so much for being here. But seriously, um, if you're listening, thank you. We're just getting started. We like to say we're an itty bitty plant of a podcast. So every download counts. It also really helps us if you rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. I have made a promise that if anyone does leave us a review, I will read it on air. So if you have something that you want to get out there to the 12 people that listen to this, please <laughs> write in. Let us know. Don't put us on blast like that, damn. <laughs> we actually have more than 12 listeners now, I think. We have listeners in quite a few countries. We do. And I do find that there's an average of about 15 to 20 downloads on each episode, which also does not mean that it's counting the people that just listen and don't download. So yeah, we, we are growing more and more every week and thank you all for helping us do that thank you so much um also if you have anything that you want to tell us any feedback about the podcast anything you really want us to cover or any corrections for us please feel free to reach out and email us our email address is podcast at scienceandpictures.com you can also follow us on instagram and facebook and slip into our dms over there we are monitoring <laughs> those like sharks following a ship going out to sea (laughs) (laughs) wonderful imagery thank you um so what are we talking about this week jared so this week we have uh very much a doozy in the form of do i want to say these words because they are part of our dragon corner as well i guess i'll just hint on them we are doing mimicry and some of the warning signs that animals might use and steal uh based on that concept Ooh, mimicry. Okay, so we're doing biology this week. Yay! Yes. <laughs> in the comfort zone. <laughs> it's usually safe to assume I'm going to pick a biology article, but I will get out of my comfort zone one of these days. One of these days. All right, awesome. I love biology. I'm excited to hear about it. But of course, before we actually take the headache out of peer-reviewed scientific literature, we like to crack the ice with a couple of fun facts. Indeed. Yes. Would you like to go first? I would like to go first. I'm really excited. Um... For those of you who've listened before, you know that I'm obsessed with Dr. Miranda L. Montgomery, and um, I'm reading her book right now, Lessons from Plants. It's incredible. It's so good. (laughs) I'm learning a lot. So it was actually hard to pick a fun fact for this week because there's so much. But one that really stood out to me is that it turns out that plants actually have the ability to recognize themselves and recognize kin. So... Oh, this has something to do with like the connected, the, the like the connectivity of a forest, right? And like the sharing of nutrients with the ones that they're related to or not? 
Yes. Or not. You might already know trees can like share nutrients and everything through fungal networks, but it's not just trees that can do this. Uh, the specific study that she talks about in the book for this point, she talks about a bunch of them, but um, it is Arabidipitis thalania. Anyway, it's a small plant whose leaves grow in a circle like a dandelion. And mm. when these plants are growing close together, researchers found that the plants can actually detect the proximity of their neighbors just by when their leaves touch. So before they even get any signals of like, you know, light being blocked, there's no photoreception here. They can actually sense by touch when they're getting too close to their neighbors. And if the other plants around them are kin, are actually like closely related to them, then they'll collaborate. They'll make sure that they're growing and not shading each other. But if the plants that they're close by that they touch are not related to them, then instead of collaborating and not shading those plants, they'll like grow up real high and shade them as much as possible. So why, Madison, does it make more sense for a plant to help something that it's more genetically close to compared to something that's not? Because they're on the same team. Um, they're trying to basically spread those genes. It's, it's that thing about life where it tries to replicate itself. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I really like kin selection because it's something that really satisfies a lot of problems people have had with evolution, which is arguably the biggest problem that people try to explain is altruism or the selfless uh, act of something, giving up something to help another. And one of the things that can easily explain that is what you were talking about, kin selection, helping an, ind an individual that you're related to because your genes are still getting passed down that way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, some people might say, oh, that takes the fun out of like all of um, martyrism. But listen, we're not talking about specific interspecies relationship between humans. <laughs> like humans can still act selflessly. And it's not just because they want their genes to be passed down. Like we do have in our brains and in our complex thought, more complex motivations for doing things. Um, but we also have a biological drive to do those things. It can be both, my friends. These worlds Indeed. are not thoughts. Yeah, just to reflect that, uh, vampire bats, for that matter, will, this doesn't matter whether it's with a, with, with a family member or not, but they will actually share blood meals with a vampire bat that didn't get to eat that day and if they don't get to eat in a day they will probably die so they'll regurgitate blood for the other bat if they realize it's hungry. Oh, that's so sweet and gross at the same time i love it yeah little blood meal oh this <laughs> is why biology is our comfort zone this is the kind of stuff that jared and i just soak up <laughs> it uh it grinds my gears in a good way yes. in fact i shouldn't have said grinds my gears there i was gonna say that sounded a little um that was fun. I okay. think turning <laughs> is what I was looking for, but <laughs> either way. <laughs> so that's my fun fact this week from Lessons from Plants, um, and I highly recommend reading it. You can order it from Harvard University Press. Go do it. Cool, cool. Mm -hmm. So my fun fact has uh, more to do with last week's episode, uh, talking about uh, the Swedish town of Eterby. <gasps> this is a really, really cool town, and it is a town that has more discovered elements associated with it than any location or person on the planet. Almost what all, all Eterby, uh, mm -hmm. where the element Eterbium was discovered, which is the very same element that was in your little quantum computer. That's why I asked. Oh my gosh, that's so amazing. Yeah. Indeed. Um, and pretty much all of the lanthanides, all of the rare earth metals were isolated from compounds they found inside that mine. And also, I really, really want to go there at some point because apparently all the streets are named after elements and scientific concepts. And I just <gasps> really vibe with that. Oh, my gosh. If we ever get yeah. a Patreon, we have to like 
go on a trip there and like bring our top five listeners or something. Absolutely. Send us to my turvy or come with us. That would be so much fun. Oh my <laughs> I love that. That'd be awesome. Wait, what are lanthanides? Lanthanides are the rare earth metals. Um, I don't know too much more about them besides the fact that they are literally rare metals found in the earth. All right. That checks yep. out. I like it. <laughs> are named after what they are. Oh, indeed. That actually reminds me of another fun fact that I learned. Um, did you know that they used to name new proteins after everything that was in them? Huh? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, like, the world's longest words were just, like, isoleucine, ketamine, no, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not ketamine, not ketamine. No, I mean, you know, the mind. <laughs> the, the, the actual uh, <laughs> but, yeah, just, like, a huge link of, like, prefixes and suffixes. It's basically, like, every single element and how it's combined in these, like, massive proteins. And so, like, the words would get to be, like, six pages long (laughs) and then after a point they decided not to do that anymore and then everyone was happy so we do talk about how we like to name things after exactly what they are but there does come to a certain point where that becomes um too little longer efficient looking at you germans (laughs) (laughs) mr additive language um cool so that would uh basically end our fun fact corner oh that was fun and now it's over Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the article I brought for this week is just as fun in my eyes. But um, last week, I told you this paper would be about birds. um, You told me that, and I was like, ah, damn. I did. Luckily for you, though, that's only partly true. Um, It more broadly concerns butterflies and a quite understudied form of convergent evolution. Uh, This paper was published in Proceedings of the Royal Society B, and it was lead authored by Erica Paez, a PhD student at Francis Sorbonne, University, and Jan Balkonen, a postdoctoral researcher at Finland's University of Ivaskira. The paper's title, Hard to Catch, Experimental Evidence for Evasive Mimicry. Hard to catch, experimental something for something something. Really good title. Glad you forgot it, because that's kind of the twist. Um, (laughs) Before we jump in, though, uh, we should probably make our way over to the jargon corner. You want to come with? I'll I'll step on over to the jargon corner. Alrighty. Here we are. Yes, that was fast. Uh, So first up is a fun little word called aposematism, or you could also call a trait aposematic. Have you heard this word before? Aposematic. Yes, this is when an animal is like really brightly colored with a lot of patterns and it's like a warning color, right? It's warning. Yes, um, with the caveat that that's one form of aposematism, but it's not the only one. So, um, this, yeah, it's a really broad term, which I know you like because you don't like boxes, but, um, indeed. So this term refers to a conspicuous or obvious trait of an organism, be it chemical, physical, or behavioral, that acts as a warning signal for others. This can include things like the hissing of a snake or a cat, a skunk lifting its tail in anticipation of spraying, or like you said, uh, bright flashy color patterns. Now, question, Madison, does it matter whether the trait's owner actually has a bite to back up its bark? No. Probably nope. not. It does not. As long as that trait effectively delivers a warning, it's still aposematic. Okay, so it's like a red flag, except there might not be anything behind the red flag. <laughs> exactly. Which brings us conveniently to our next term, mimicry. What's that? Uh, mimicry would be copying the behavior of another organism or appearance. Behavior or appearance. 
Yes, um, yeah, pretty much. So mimicry happens when fairly unrelated organisms, generally in the same habitat, evolve similar traits intended for the same purpose. Uh, in mimicry, you always have three parties. There's the model, the one who had the trait first, there's the mimic, the one that co-opted that trait, and then the receiver, that's the third party, often a predator, uh, that the trait is intended to work on. So something like a butterfly being really bright, the receiver would be the bird that's going to avoid it. Okay, so I can think of a good example of this. So if you think of like the blue ring octopus, super, super venomous octopus with bright blue rings. Mm -hmm. And then we have the blue spotted stingray, not very venomous stingray with bright, bright blue spots. Then we have a reef shark looking for a snack. It sees the blue spotted stingray and it thinks that's like that poisonous octopus, not going to eat it. Yeah? Yeah. Do, do they live in the same habitat though? Yeah. Oh, then yes, that would be the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, it would have to be tested to make sure that it was true mimicry, but that does sound about right. Yeah, that might not be true mimicry, but... <laughs> <laughs> so from mimicry, we can further break it down into Batesian mimics, the ones that are bluffing, uh, and Mullerian mimics, the ones that actually deliver on the same promise as, as, as their model. Now, fun fact, I used to think that I was pronounced Batesian mimicry because I thought it sounded way cooler, but no, it's just after some dude named Bates. So uh, here we go. More to dudes named Bates. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'm going to call it Batesian mimicry from now on, which is good because I don't have to say it ever again. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the Batesian mimics are the ones that are bluffing. The Mullerian mimics are the ones that actually deliver on the same promise. I got it. So Batesian bluff, Mullerian monster. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's go with that. I'm not up for you. <laughs> But yeah, uh, our jargon corner was pretty short. Those are the only two words that we need to be acquainted with to get started. Really? That's all I need to know? That's all you gotta know. Oh my goodness. I'm so excited to dive in. Indeed. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. So for as long as it's been studied, most of the research on aposematism and mimicry as sort of tied together has been focused only on prey species equipped with chemical defenses, like noxious, overwhelming odors, or just having a really bad tasting body. In fact, I actually helped run a field experiment in college using wild birds that investigated this very concept. We did this by making lots and lots of little bird-safe pastry snacks shaped like little worms, and we colored them either green, yellow, or orange. Half the green and half the orange worms were then dipped in quinine. Have you ever heard of quinine? Quinine. No. It's extremely bitter. It's, um, it's actually the thing that makes, I think, gin and tonic really, uh, like, supposedly, supposedly tasting good bitter, but... The more quinine, the more bitter something is, and birds and mammals uh, interpret it in the same way. Okay, so that would be like what juniper berries taste like then? Like the real bitter? Sure. Never had those, but sure. <laughs> I mean, that's what flavors gin, so. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. And that's I do the not. reason juniper grows such bitter berries, I think. Have we cultivated it to do that? I don't know. Interesting. Well, you're the bartender. Um... <laughs> <laughs> so, um... Yeah, so we dipped half of the green and the orange worms in quinine. Uh, in my experience, I tasted them. Oh, God, I cannot imagine that must have been a pleasant experience for, for whatever else I had to eat it. But we uh, carefully kept track of which worms got that bitter-tasting treatment. Each morning, we went out to a patch of forest and laid down a grid of snacks on a raised platform, placing unaltered or foul-tasting treats at random. And sure enough, uh, we could clearly see over time that our birds and probably squirrels, if I'm being honest, uh, did learn to avoid both the green and orange worms, but not the completely unaltered yellow ones. Oh, okay. So yeah, yeah. they're avoiding bitterness. 
But then yeah. you could put down those same treats with green and orange ones with no bitter tasting stuff, and the birds still wouldn't snack on them because they'd think they were bitter. Very likely not. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. Now, am I telling you this story because I think that I deserve a Nobel Prize for an experiment that's already been done countless times over? Yes, um, but it's also a pretty good segue into the experiments performed in this week's paper. Okay, so by the way, um, that was an absolute very serious call. Dear listeners, please nominate Jared for a Nobel Prize for his work with, <laughs> with bird pastries. I mean, he tasted them, guys. He tasted them himself. He's good. Uh-huh. Now, it was more of a assignment than a published paper, and it didn't get published, but um, I'm completely 100%, 1,000% serious. Just I kidding. Think you um, <laughs> thank you. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I even put that in there. Um, so, aposematism... Oh, I took that bait, and you knew I was there. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, so, aposematism... This is the podcast where we compliment Jared. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we did you last week. I know. <laughs> So, aposematism and mimicry have been studied so much in regards to foul taste signaling that you'd be forgiven for thinking that the two are ex exclusively connected. But hypothetically, any negative consequences imposed on a predator could be tied to a warning signal over time, so long as prey individuals that advertise this warning have better odds of survival that don't. Uh, Madison, can you think of any other traits in prey that could be linked to a warning signal? Besides, like, bad taste? Or poisonous? Taste, um, or being poisonous, or being venomous, um, being like real strong and aggressive, um, bad smell. Um, That's a good one. Let's see. What else? Um, gives you gas? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what about being really, really hard to catch? Interesting. Oh, yeah, because then a predator would have to waste a bunch of energy trying to catch this thing. And if they're not going to catch it, then that's not a good meal choice. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, exactly right. For a wild predator whose next meal is by no means guaranteed, wasting the energy on prey that's too hard to catch could end up leaving them hungrier than they were before they pursued it. Yeah. Uh, indeed, taking such negative consequences into account, it's easy to imagine a scenario where evasiveness-based warning colors pop up and mimics evolve to reap the benefits. Oh my and god, interesting. So literally animals will mimic other animals just because they're really, really fast. We think. This idea was first suggested over 60 years ago. There's been four papers published on the topic besides this one. That is a really, really interesting idea. I've never heard that before. Okay. Right? This was the, 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 this was my first first experience with the two, and I was this was such a cool experiment, but we'll we'll get into that later. Okay. Um so the work so far, uh, these few past experiments that have been done, have indeed hinted that predatory birds are capable of identifying speedy, evasive prey use using visual cues, but they didn't actually use anything that looks like a prey item, so it also took them 20 days to, to condition the birds to do it, so inconclusive in that regard. Um, but that work pretty much only establishes quote-unquote evasive aposematism and mimicry as possibilities. Much more testing is necessary to establish whether real-world examples could actually be the real deal. Okay, so we don't know for sure if there are any animals that are actually out there just mimicking speedy animals. But we know that it would work if they did. Exactly. And okay. one such potential example lies in the diverse butterfly genus Adelpha, uh, which is found throughout Mexico and Central and South America. That's the region of the world known to scientists as the Neotropics. The Neotropics. The New World Tropics. That makes sense. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Um, so these butterflies are, they're gorgeous. Uh, they uh, sport jet black bodies and wings draped in flashy bands of color, 
which they openly display both at rest and while gliding mid-flight. So mid-flight, they stop and glide and also show, show, show their colors, which scientists feel is pretty telling. Um, on the other hand, uh, previous work that has tried to establish Adelta butterflies as foul-tasting is contradictory at best. It's just, it goes in either way, and it's probably not the case. Um, on the other hand, though, they are all really, really good at dodging predators. These butterflies sport body proportions strongly tied to better flight capability, and it's actually shown in practice by their irregular movement, sharp turns, and sudden rapid dives that they employ to avoid the hungry mouths of predators. Ooh, okay, so these this family of butterflies is like really pretty and stripy and also really fast and dodgy. Indeed, and there are mimics uh, that pop up basically wherever Adelpha exists to look like Adelpha or kind of like Adelpha butterflies. Oh my gosh, so wherever you find this family of super pretty, speedy, dodgy butterflies, you also find other butterflies that want to look like them. Mm-hmm. So uh, with that in mind, our authors began their investigation with three guiding questions. One, can birds learn to associate wing patterns specifically with highly evasive prey? Two, can the signal be generalized to mimic species so that the mimics are also assumed by predators to be evasive as well, even though they might not be? And three, which type of signals were predatory birds more easily learn, those for evasiveness or those for foul taste? Ooh, okay. Love it. Mm-hmm. So the <laughs> very good. The following experiments were conducted and made possible by Central Finland's Konavesi Research Station. Um, pause this and look it up if 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 you uh, have a sec. It is a gorgeous facility. It's completely surrounded by nature. You looking it up? I'm looking it up. I don't know how to spell it. <laughs> spell it for our friends. Uh, K O N N E V E S I. Hi, Konavesi. It is a gorgeous place. Ooh. Okay. Um. Dear listeners, if you want to see a picture of this beautiful place, it also will be in our Instagram post associated with this episode. Mm-hmm. Just follow us. We always post anything we reference on the Instagram. Oh, yes, wow. we do. Matt, it's really cool, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is a facility, uh, as you can see, Madison, completely surrounded by nature and used for, who would have thought, ecology studies. Um, so the authors had to pick a bird of choice to use for this experiment. Uh, would you like to guess what they picked? Oh, um... What kind of bird lives in Finland? <laughs> I don't know. Seagull? <laughs> <laughs> so the species of choice was the Eurasian blue tit. Oh, of course. The Eurasian blue tit. <laughs> <laughs> Can't fault you for not getting that one. Um, so blue tits were ideal for a few reasons. Uh, they're well-known and heavily studied visual predators. They eagerly go after both moving and still prey. And most importantly, they don't live alongside any butterflies that look like Adelpha. So seeing the butterfly, the Adelpha butterfly patterns would be a completely new experience for those birds, which is crucial for seeing if they can learn signals associated with it, because if they have prior experience, then how would you really know? No blue tits in the new world. <laughs> <laughs> Not the Eurasian ones, at least. Yeah. Um, so for this experiment, a total of 87 tits were gathered from nearby feeding sites. <laughs> All were... <laughs> I knew you would laugh at that. <laughs> of all of the, why not, why not just say birds? I love that you chose to say tits. Because <laughs> I knew you'd laugh at it. <laughs> Do we have any high schoolers listening? You're welcome. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, oh boy. So the 87 tits were gathered. Um, all were all were housed individually. Okay, wait, wait, wait. And... The best part about it is it's not an even number. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. This is 
so this is a completely unrelated tangent, and I'm probably going to delete this, but you know how lizards have two dicks? Uh, no. I knew that sharks S- had two dicks. <laughs> so I guess it applies to sharks, too. Uh, lizards and turtles and snakes both have a paired uh, penis appendage, so statistically speaking, the average lizard has a dick. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I get it, because statistics. Oh my mm-hmm. god. That's funny. Wait, did you just say turtles have two dicks too? Yes, turtles have any penis as well. But I've seen a turtle penis and it looks like like a hand reaching out of their butthole. <laughs> it's got multiple fingers though, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, those those and those, those... Too. Interesting. Maybe it's a thing with different turtles. I know at least some of them have hemi penis. Okay. But I guess I'm going to have to fact check my animal penis knowledge. How Thank many you. penises do turtles have? Find out next week on Science. <laughs> <laughs> we, we should probably delete this entire section. Um, I mean, we'll, we'll run it by our, our uh, Becca. Are you listening? <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Um, so all of those birds were housed individually and given a constant supply of food and water, and none were kept for more than 10 days before release. Uh, this, along with giving birds ample time to acclimate to the experimental setup, ensured as really much as possible that high stress levels wouldn't mess with their data. Oh, good. So the birds were wild, and they were only participating in the study for 10 days. Indeed. They were uh, released right after that, after getting a, a bit more data from them. Now, free the butterflies... What's up? I said, free the tits. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I've created a monster. Um... The butterflies, on the other hand, didn't require any care, because in a rather clever twist, they weren't actually real. Instead, true-to-life butterflies were printed onto run-of-the-mill average normal printer paper with an enticing piece of almond attached to the underside. So basically, they used things that looked exactly like butterflies, which has the same effect as using a real butterfly. Yeah, and then it has a juicy almond right where the juicy body would be. Yes, indeed. So I'm going to link a short video from this experiment in the episode's description. So pause this for a sec if you want to watch it. It's actually really cute. Um, If you don't, picture a big box with a horizontal perch inside. On the ground, on either side, are two parallel rails that a paper butterfly can be attached to, and here's the kicker, quickly pulled out of reach. That's to simulate the evasiveness. I'm going to do this to my cat. Very good. Um, So the birds were pre-trained with dark brown butterflies to encourage them in the first place to actually associate any model they placed on the rails with a food reward. From there, they were split into three different test groups. The first group was given the choice to go after either a completely black control butterfly or one that modeled an Adelpha species with bright orange wingbands. Birds that attacked the control were allowed to eat the almond, while birds that attacked the model had it pulled right away before they could reach it. It actually looks kind of mean, but they got to eat afterwards. It's fine. Um, This was done for a maximum of 80 trials, or until the birds went after the Adelpha model, no more than 2 out of 10 times in a row. So with this method, which is actually pretty important, they could include birds that were fast learners, as well as ones that were reasonably slow learners. Aw, inclusive. I appreciate that. Exactly. Birds that couldn't meet either criteria uh, were deemed uninformative and released after determining their age and sex. Uh, Okay. Yeah. So, Madison, why do you think it was important to include both fast and slow uh, learning birds in the experiment's next phases? Well, because, I mean, to find out if this sort of coloration is effective at deterring predators, 
you can't just find out if it's effective at deterring the smartest predators. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You need you need variety. Um, while any yeah, researcher you need, would, you need a diverse sample size, otherwise it's going to skew your data. Exactly. Um, because while any researcher would love to be able to gather nice, clean, straightforward data, this simply doesn't accurately reflect uh, the everyday interactions that happen in nature. Um, having both types of learners is crucial for a study on generalization, which is literally learning. Um, because like the psychological studies where they only test them on college students, like at prestigious universities, it's like that is not an accurate sample of the world. <laughs> nope. Not a good sample size. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they should take a cue from the study on birds because they included the slow and the fast. Um, so birds in group two uh, went through the exact same procedure, but with an, an Adelpha species with orange, black, and white wing bands instead. Uh, group three was trained on this exact same model, but in uh, this case, the model's almond was soaked in diluted chloroquine phosphate, which is a foul-tasting chemical related to quinine. Either way, it tastes just as bad. Uh, birds in this group were allowed to eat either almonds, but would definitely like one more than the other. I see. So one group of birds was shown a black butterfly that they get a nice tasty almond from, and a stripy butterfly that they can't get an almond from because it's too fast. Mm -hmm. And then a separate group of the same type of birds were shown a black butterfly that they always get a nice tasty almond from, and a stripy butterfly that they get a disgusting almond from. Yes. Great. Keep yep, going. so so <laughs> <laughs> so two evasive groups and one distasteful group. I see. Yes. Um, but before the next phase was even performed, an interesting trend popped up. Um, so remember, in this phase, if they couldn't uh, get past this initial phase, they failed and couldn't move forward. Um, in groups one and two, the evasive butterfly groups, a total of 11 birds failed to advance. Uh, five from the first group and six from the second. But from group three alone, the distasteful butterfly group, 10 birds would fail to move forward. Um, a bit more analysis showed that birds in this phase were nearly twice as likely overall to learn to avoid the evasive butterflies over the bad tasting ones. That is not what I was expecting. Me neither. Oh my goodness. Okay, so basically what that means is they're kind of fine with eating the bad tasting almond, but they are not fine with the butterfly getting away from them and getting no almond. Yes, the association with the evasive uh, coloration is almost twice as strong. Wow. Which is crazy. Um, what is but that's a really strong correlation. That's interesting. Indeed. A little bit more on that later. Um, so we're going to move on to the experiment's final phase. And this one is going to examine whether birds are going to go on to generalize their learned signal, which is either the evasiveness or the bad taste, uh, to butterflies that slightly resembled their model. Um, chosen patterns were uh, those from other species of Adelpha and were termed imperfect mimics. So in each group, you have groups one, two, and three. You have the model butterfly, the one with the stripy colors, two imperfect mimics, and the black butterfly, the control. Now here's the kicker. Each experiment, each one of these birds, was given a single chance to, to target one butterfly out of the four. When that choice was observed, the experiment was over. That makes sense. Indeed. We don't want them but, learning anymore. We already did class. This is the test. <laughs> exactly. But uh, Madison, do you have any thoughts on why this phase included imperfect mimics rather than ones that matched their butterfly more closely? Well, no. <laughs> no worries. Um, so much like using the both the fast and the slow learning birds, the imperfect mimics are going to represent the natural variation of species coexisting with the Delta butterflies in the wild that might happen to bear a passing resemblance to them. If the imperfect mimics were avoided at high enough rates, it would provide pretty damning experimental evidence that a similar real world scenario could drive the evolution of imperfect mimics into near perfect ones. Right. Okay. 
That makes sense because of how natural selection works. Yes, indeed. Can't create something from nothing. Can't create something from nothing. Okay, cool. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Way to incorporate yeah. evolution into the experiment. Indeed. This was such a clever design, and it's pretty much why I picked this paper, but it was really cool. Um, so when all was said and done, while Evasive Group 1's results were just shy of conclusive, um, Group 2's testing clearly showed that the birds at least partially generalized the evasive signal to the imperfect mimics. So it worked. Um, among other things, Group 1's results could be possibly explained by one of the imperfect mimics having a wing color that wasn't present in the model. Um, just a little bit of uh, pre uh, precursor knowledge. Uh, previous research has shown that for birds, specific colors tend to mo mean more to them than actual patterns. So group one's results could be explained by that, pretty much. Kind of like how sharks like things that are yellow. Yes, indeed. Yeah. They do. It's fun. <laughs> um, as for group three, uh, results were as expected. They also generalized, but we know this has happened a bunch of times, so not really that informative. It just shows that the experiment was not flawed, because if it was, those birds probably would have failed. Um, all right, cool. Good experiment. Really good experiment. Yes, indeed. So what does this all mean for the real-world possibility of evasive mimicry, an overlooked idea first suggested over 60 years ago? And how does it compare as a signal to those associated with bad taste? Well, first and foremost, it finally proves beyond the shadow of a doubt that birds can rapidly learn, they did this within a day, uh, memorize, and go on to generalize a signal that tells them a prey item is too hard to catch. All three of those boxes have to be checked for evasive mimicry to evolve in the wild. Um, of course, the authors strongly encourage follow-up studies to further investigate different wing patterns and other variables. But for now, the idea of real-world Adelpha butterflies and their mimics advertising their quickness seems pretty plausible. Yeah, um, try it. Exactly. Uh, now, the real work is going to their natural predators and seeing if the same work happens. If that happens, we can be pretty sure. Yeah, okay. So they did it with the Eurasian blue tit because... They wanted to see if it was possible, but now we have to go do some observation studies and see if it actually happens. Exactly, which is kind of absurd that this is just now happening for an idea suggested at the end of the 60s. But um, yeah, that's where well, we are. There's a lot of that going on. Yes, uh, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the idea that birds, sorry, the fact that birds more easily associated wing patterns with evasiveness over bad taste and generalized the mimics uh, more broadly was also pretty noteworthy, as we've talked about. Um, like ecologist Madison, uh, you have thought that the opposite was going to be more likely, but you're not alone. Everyone pretty much thinks that. Yeah, uh, that I mean, taste like, would... what I remember learning in, like, you know, all of the kids' books about animals where you learn stuff about mimicry and all of that is, like, it's always about a bitter taste. It is, but that's also reflecting a gigantic bias in the research, that that's really the only stuff being studied as far as aposematism goes. Yeah, that's really interesting. Indeed. And it um, makes me like birds a little better that like they don't mind a bitter almond. They'd rather have a bitter almond than no almond. I like that. <laughs> well, so a lot more does have to be studied, like based on their hunger level, uh, stress levels would probably in, in, impact this as well. But yeah. from the ecologist's perspective, um, it's kind of what you were saying. You can usually tell that you don't like the taste of something after a single experience. It's much harder to decide after a single chase that could have been just a fluke whether a, pre a tasty prey species is worth it or not. But you also have to consider that there's very likely a spectrum of bad taste tolerance in any predator population. True. So some care about bad tastes much more than others. For example, I love very dark chocolate. Uh, and I hate it. Hates it. And as humans, we are both predators. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in this way, a predator that's too evasive could actually be a more reliable warning than bad taste. Aha. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. But 
Whichever way you look at it, though, this concept requires further experimentation. Which it is sure does. It's almost a fun area to experiment in. I mean, you get to go to beautiful tropical South America and Mexico, looking at butterflies and blue tits. Mm. <laughs> I know there's not going to be blue tits in the Americas, but I wanted to say it again. Of course. Of course. Um, so to sum it all up, a rather ingenious experiment using blue tits and paper butterflies has offered the first solid experimental evidence for evasive mimicry and to possibly exist in wild animals. It will hopefully provide the momentum necessary for lots of additional literature to be included in the literal four other papers currently published on this topic. Only four! Only four. Wow. Mm -hmm. Also, we should call this episode Blue Tits and Paper Butterflies. I was actually thinking the exact same thing. That, that's uh, that's the nice conversion thought there. It's catchy. I'd watch that movie if it was a movie. I would too. So, yeah, this is like the shortest episode we've had in months. It's very short. <laughs> it's very short. My mom and dad are going to love that. <laughs> Except for the fact, oh my God, that I'm talking about tits the whole time. <laughs> Ooh, here's a fun question for our listeners. Uh, if you were aposomatic, what signal would you advertise for, doesn't have to be predators, just your audience? What would you want them to know? Oh, if I could like advertise something about me on my body with colors, mm -hmm. I'd have blue tits. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize, mom and dad and Jared. <laughs> Still trying to figure out if I should bleep those. No, I'm not going to bleep that word. I did used to be a bartender and stand-up comedian, so. <laughs> <laughs> You're fine. I can't help who I am, okay? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so i would probably use aposmatic coloration to advertise that i make off-color jokes <laughs> i would probably advertise my avoidant attachment style because that gets me in trouble all the time oh that's considerate yeah. <laughs> is it considerate or am i just avoiding a fight i like it well uh, there you go i guess i mean and now I'm thinking about tattoos as aposmatic coloration. What do my tattoos say about me? That you're going to talk to them about animals, which is true. <laughs> For those I... who don't know, which is most of you, Jared is has a tattoo of a blue, no, a mimic octopus. Mm -hmm. um, some dinosaur fossil bones. Bapiosaurus and Utyrannus, mother There, There was both Latin and um profanity there and i don't know <laughs> and the other began <laughs> you're welcome um i mean you could yeah consider that if people don't want to hear about biology and they see your arms they'd probably be like not gonna talk to that guy oh get away from me if you don't want to hear about biology just fair fair warning folks i, I have a tattoo on my arm that says nothing is permanent so if people don't want to contemplate mortality they should avoid me <laughs> Now, I thought that was a funny joke, because, like, a tattoo that says nothing is permanent obviously is permanent, so I'm like, oh, that's ironic. It's not permanent, Jared, because my body is not permanent. That's true. Nothing. Oh, yeah. Nothing is static. The Everything only constant is, is change, if you want to be sciencey about it. This has just been five solid minutes of us going off on tangents. I mean, we did say at the beginning of this that the end, we're just going to dick around. And I think that's exactly what we're doing. That is, in fact, exactly what, what we're doing. <laughs> um, it's good. Uh, it is good. I mean, uh, it, gives you, it gives you a lot to work with when you're doing your flower arranging, which is what I call editing now, I guess. <laughs> Interesting. 
never thought about it I that way. But sure. At the beginning, I told you at the beginning that my brain is not here today. <laughs> um, not- I'm going to hop on that uh, real quick to say stop planting non-native flowers in your yard, folks. Plant native plants. Help your local insects. Oh, yeah. Speaking of butterflies and springtime, that actually is something that we could talk about. Oh, yeah. Folks, if you see some milkweed, don't get rid of it. You might find them on our caterpillar on one of these days. And those butterflies are cool as hell. Those butterflies are cool as hell. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a volunteer at the Museum of Science in the Butterfly Garden. Oh, Gianna. Who? Gianna. I just remembered her name real quick, but yes. No, him. him. him? I mean, Gianna also was a volunteer there. But no, this there was an, a random older gentleman that I met who was volunteering in the Butterfly Garden at the Museum of Science one day. And he literally talked to me for more than 30 minutes about monarch butterflies and this really cool experiment to try to figure out basically how they navigate on their migrations. Is this the one where they brought them inside a planetarium? Yeah. Ah, that's so cool. Yeah. So for anyone who doesn't know, monarch butterflies, um, they migrate from Canada all the way down to Mexico, but it's not single butterflies making that whole trip. It's multiple generations. So like the butterflies that are born in Mexico never actually make it to Canada. It's their great, great granddaughters and sons that make it to Canada. So it's like, how do they know where to go when not even each generation is going like the same path? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like other animals that have set migrations like sea turtles, we also don't know exactly how they find their way back and forth, but at least it's the same animal going the same place over and over again. This is- Ooh, 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 ooh. I just read something really cool about that, but keep going. Okay. Um, but yeah, monarch butterflies, it's like, it's somehow programmed into their DNA to pass on like a different set of navigation to the next generation, whatever. So in this experiment, they literally had them in like a little glass dome and they literally created like a, (laughs) they literally um, like had a little harness around the monarch butterfly and suspended (laughs) them from the top of the glass jar um, and then put them into like a completely dark space and basically cut them off from everything except for the earth's gravitational pull, because you can't, cut anyone off from that Unless i mean it's in space um yeah so like no light cues no 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 other kind of cue and they still flew as if they were going to the place that they like would go if they were in that part of their migration really yeah which means monarch butterflies are attuned to literally the earth's magnetism that's how they navigate that is so fun to me, especially when you consider the fact that, like, we know that they're doing it, but there are so many animals that do it where we have no idea how they're interpreting or even receiving the signals. Right? We just it, don't know. It's crazy to me. Like, monarch butterflies are so little and so ephemeral. They're only here for, like, a few months, you know? And yet they are connected to something that we can't even feel or connect to. You know what I mean? It's crazy, man. I rue every single day that I can't sense the Earth's magnetic field and adjust my location in relation to it. I know, right? I can't. I don't know. I, as we talked about last week, I don't even know right and left. <laughs> monarch butterfly knows exactly where it is on planet Earth. How is that? <laughs> I don't even know, man. But uh, anyway, day- uh, the end of my story is after I talked to this man for like 45 minutes, it turns out he was actually the scientist who designed that experiment. <laughs> Holy crap. Yeah, and he was just retired, so he was volunteering at the Butterfly Garden. That's <laughs> he, awesome. Yeah. Oh, you must have been so, like, culture-shocked. That's I, I was starstruck. Starstruck? Starstruck. Yeah, yes. I was very, very starstruck. Um, if we had this podcast at the time, I would have asked him to come on and talk about it. I wonder oh, if he's been cool. there. So the, the moral of that monarch butterfly story 
um, is the reason I'm talking about monarch butterflies is as they're making their long journeys, they really depend on native plants like milkweed, especially milkweed. So, um, and there's lots of other native animals and like, you know, more than monarch butterflies that rely on native plants because plants are a really important part of ecosystem and everything in an ecosystem has its place and a purpose. So if you're thinking of planting flowers this year, consider some native wildflowers, native plants in general. Um, no one needs to have a cookie cutter lawn anymore. That's that's an outdated thing from France Dude. in like the 1700s. Bermuda grass, right to hell. Yeah. Bermuda yeah. grass is lawn grass, by the way. And yeah. the reason it's called Bermuda grass is because it's not from here. <laughs> is it even Bermuda though? Like, did it no, it's not. I don't know where it's from, but it's... <laughs> It's useless and it's it takes so much water to keep it alive because it's not supposed to be here and it's not helping anyone. It's really not. Yeah. And so wildflowers are like pretty as hell too. So just get some of those. They're gorgeous. Yeah. And when you bring more native plants around you, then you'll start to see more really cool species. Um, so do that. Do that. And then look for butterflies and listen for frogs and turn over rocks and look for salamanders and then hop on to the old Instagram and DM us and tell us about it. Yeah. Also put the rock back because that salamander is probably trying to sleep. Oh, yeah. If you find a salamander, sal, sal, a, sal a salamander. Hello? Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you find a salamander sleeping under a rock, say thank you and then tuck him back in. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We should probably end on that. <laughs> thank well, you so much for anyone who is still listening at this point uh we love you and you make this stuff happen you do make it happen please keep making it happen rate review subscribe dm do a little dance sing a little song get down tonight goodbye goodbye